What if you could save $2,000 to $5,000 every year in depreciations off your property? Hi, I'm Joe Krause. And I'm Sam Powell, and we're the hosts of the Property Powers Australia podcast. And in this episode, we're talking with the lovely Mike Mortlock from MCG Quantity Surveyors and also runs Gear for Growth podcast. And we discussed the importance of a quantity surveyor in your property investment team as well as looking at the Australian property market outlook for 2024 because Mike's really well connected in the industry and um, has really good insights. So listening on in for that. And also we uh, we had a good laugh about the common misconceptions of investing in the highest depreciation asset in property and how they are often not the best for your capital growth in your portfolio. Yeah, we also discussed what sort of assets you can use for your depreciation schedule and when you should use the quantity surveyor or when you should not use the quantity surveyor based on the asset that you have and we also discuss how much you can save per year based on like a hundred thousand dollars of depreciating assets what those depreciating depreciating assets look like in terms of like the building minus some of the plant equipment what that plant equipment would actually be and then we also talk about you know not just the media, like the mainstream media, but where people are conditioned to believe what the property market is versus markets within markets. And as you can tell, Mike has a breadth of knowledge in the space of property investing and it's such a valuable podcast episode. I'm sure you guys are going to get so much value from it. But outside that, we also add value by giving you our mini course on how to maximize your borrowing capacity on our website. You can get that at propertypals.au forward slash free resources or resources and download that and let's dive into the pod. Welcome to Property Pals, the podcast where we share everything around how to build a property portfolio from researching areas, financing, structuring, buying, selling and reinvesting to live a life of financial independence. As a disclaimer, any information shared by myself, Jared, Sam and the Property Pals team is strictly general and should not be taken as constituting professional advice. You should consider seeking independent legal, financial, and taxation advice from a qualified professional. Sam, Mike, welcome to the, welcome to the pod, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'm, I've been looking forward to this one uh, for a while. It's uh, it's nice to meet you, and I've, of course, known Sam for a while, and uh, he's always good value. So, um, yeah, we'll see how we go. Yeah, lovely to meet you. Uh, we've had a good laugh already off air, so I'm sure this is going to be a fun time, and that's what we're about, education and fun time. So quantity surveyor, like what even is that, I guess? Um, walk us through <laughs> what? You know, just for people listening, what what is a quantity surveyor, um, and why is you know having one important for your team, your know, in your mm. property investment journey? It is one of those professions you can go, kind of go your whole life without thinking about. You know, like you you drive to work and you, and you pass you know street signs and uh, and telegraph poles and all sorts of things. Like the world just works magically because of 
little hidden people behind the scenes, and I suppose that I'm one of them. So a quantity surveyor has got nothing to do with that tripod. We get that a lot, right? Those are the land surveyors. Um, but a quantity surveyor <laughs> is just someone that is a construction cost estimating specialist, right? So if you need to know how much something costs to build, you normally would go to a quantity surveyor. The way that I kind of work in the property industry is I'm more of a tax specialist. So I'm in the tax depreciation space. And the easiest way to explain that is that if you run a business, you have income and you have expenses. The income will be whatever stuff you sell. The expenses will be your staff or your marketing or your facilities and what have you. So when you're running a business, the income is the rent. The expenses are things like your interest component of your loan, your property management fees, um, and tax depreciation is an on-paper expense. And what that really is is just us coming out and doing a report, a bit like a valuer does, and then getting all of the assets within the property, calculating their decline in value over time, which we get from the tax office, and then it just essentially helps people to pay less tax. Tax minimization strategies. It's really important stuff. But yeah. I've- yeah. Or depending on which side of politics you sit on, tax loopholes. But, you know, negative gearing gets talked about as a loophole. And I think that was established in 1936. So I think if you're going to call it a loophole, it's got to be something that's kind of like newly found and, and not really intended for the purpose. Negative gearing does not qualify as a loophole in my view. Yeah. Well, everyone's looking at ways to minimize their tax because we all feel like we pay too much in Australia. Uh, yeah. But- like when's it like this is a sort of a question is you get people asking well one what is a quantity surveyor there you go fantastic thank you for that in-depth description Done that. yep um, and then it's like oh well you know when's it actually worth using a quantity surveyor and mm. i usually go well go talk to mike but you're here now so do you want to jump yeah. in and <laughs> you know, way to make me do all the heavy lifting <laughs> i suppose i'm the guest also <laughs> i don't know what i expected <laughs> also i'd like to maybe frame that up as well as like because I was looking at a corny surveyor um, with like two, like two of my properties and I thought, okay, I might get it. And Sam was like, well, maybe it's not worth it um, for those types of properties based on how old those assets are. So maybe like when is it worth having one or like what sort of assets it's worth having one for and what it's like maybe not worth having one for if that is if it, even a thing. I'm going to have a red hot go, Jared. Um, I, I came up with uh, the three triggers that tell you when a depreciation schedule is worthwhile. Um, Did you patent the it? First, beg your pardon? Did you patent it? No, I haven't yet. I'll have to talk to my uh, IP lawyer. Um, <laughs> it was I originally came up with it for property managers, right, who, who want to give property investors good advice but feel sort of like a little bit unsure about, you know, talking about something that's not their area of expertise, but I think it works for for anybody. So the three triggers are if the property is built uh, is built or bought brand new. That's the most obvious one. I think everyone knows it's a brand new property. There's going to be great depreciation. The reason why is because you'll be able to claim the original building structure as an undeducted asset. So it's got 100% of its value, right? Um, so we estimate the construction cost as at the date that it was built, and then you'll get 40 years worth of deductions based on that. So it's, it's brand new. The second one, it's built after the cutoff date for depreciation claims on the original building structure. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful. doesn't fit really great on an Instagram card. Um, but what, what, 
what is important to understand is that in depreciation, there's kind of like two categories or two main buckets, I like to call them. One is the plant and equipment items, and they're kind of like the loose fitting assets, things like carpets and blinds and ovens and cooktops. The other component is the structure. Um, so that's going to be things like timber, like concrete, like gyprock, where most of the value will sit. So the cutoff date to be able to claim that structure is the 16th of September, 1987. Don't even try and remember that exact date. Just think 87, right? So if it's built after 87, automatically worthwhile, right? Because the structure will qualify. So if the property was built in, say, 1988 for $100,000, at two and a half percent, you're getting two thousand five hundred a year worth of deductions, and that's really enough to pay for the report, probably in the first year, um, and you're getting forty years worth of deductions. So, um, gosh, this is getting long winded, but we're almost at the end. It's brand new, or <laughs> it's built after eighty seven. The the third trigger is that it doesn't match one or two. It's not brand new. It's not built after 87. So let's say it's a property built in the 60s, and we're talking specifically resi in this example. Um, if it's built in the 60s, the original structure won't qualify and you won't be able to claim the plant and equipment items. But what we're looking for is renovations or improvements. So if it's had a new kitchen or a bathroom or an extension, what we're able to do as quantities phase is estimate the value of those works, either done by the previous owner or done by yourself. And the first time we analysed this was pre-COVID. Construction costs were a lot uh, cheaper pre-COVID. Um, and we found that 69.9% of properties built prior to 1987 had been renovated to an average value of $39,500. And that's about the break-even point for a depreciation schedule being worthwhile. So another way of putting that is uh, anything built prior to the cutoff date, you know, we're, we're finding almost two-thirds of them being worthwhile from a depreciation point of view. So it certainly does happen, Jared, that there will be properties that are too old, that there's not enough value to get a report done. We'll do free estimates, and if we don't think the, the property is going to stack, then we won't recommend it. But those, I think, are the three easiest ways to think about it. Is it brand new? Is it post-87? But if it's pre-87, has it been renovated? And we kind of want to see about 40 or 50 grand worth of renos. Yeah, I love it. So when you mean is it brand new, um, so that's one, and then another one is if it's post-87 and yep. then, yeah, okay. And so you gave a bit of an example around a 100K property and it was 2.5% sort yep. of like or 100K worth of claimable yes. uh, assets. Uh, so was it 2.5% or 2%? Yeah. Was- so, the, so the building structure will depreciate at 2.5% of its value each financial year for 40 years from the date of construction. So right. a good pickup there. So technically, if it was built for $100,000, we would have to deduct the plant and equipment items, which might be worth $10,000, say. So then you're only looking at $90,000 remaining at 2.5%, which is way beyond my mathematical capability, but it's still going to be um, a worthwhile report. Yeah. And plant and equipment is, like you said before, like ovens and air conditioners yep. and stuff like that. Got you. Yeah, hot water systems, door closers, ceiling fans, all of those types of oh. things. Yeah, cool. So if... That's a hundred k. So, say somebody's got a property worth like five hundred k. The building yep. might not actually, you know, the, you got the land value, then you got the building 
value, I guess. So it's based off yep. the building value minus plant and equipment. Is that right? Uh, well, yeah, that is a that is a way to look at it. But I would, I would, um, I would caution people to think about market value as having much bearing on the tax depreciation value. Um, and you know, obviously, Sam's in the right place for this uh, conversation as a as a valuer. But market value and and depreciable value don't always line up. In fact, we've done a number of reports where the total deductions were actually worth more than what the person paid for it because it might not have been an arm's length transaction or, or typically it will happen in commercial property where the whole land footprint uh, can be building and things can be overcapitalized as well. I also did a, a an estimate for a house um, in one of the blue chip suburbs of Sydney. This is um, probably about 2017. Someone paid $8 million for a property and we actually had to say, look, there's actually no depreciation deductions available in this because it was some weird kind of abandoned mansion that hadn't had anything done to it since the 60s, like a, a bit of an odd situation. And if you think about the difference between, say, market value and depreciable value, another good example is let's say you've got two units. One uh, is overlooking Sydney Harbour and then the other one's on the other side of the building and it's looking at a car park. Um, the, the market value is going to be much higher because of that view, but from a depreciation point of view, there's no construction cost in land or in views, right? So it makes zero difference. So, so I think, yeah, that's it's important to think about the difference between market value and, and actual depreciable value. Another, another good thing that I've uh, picked up on too is people often ask you in like certain podcasts that I'm a bit of a fan of, um, if anyone's like heard of geared for growth and check out mike is uh what are your top top 44 top 50 in australia now oh that that wasn't the that wasn't the podcast that was um that was uh yesterday uh elite agents top 50 influencers so like i I came in the bottom 10 percent but you know like i'm in so you're on a big deal yeah you're on the list um goes bad i'm going back to my trailer yeah, you won't come back on, mate. <laughs> Sorry about that in advance. But no, you make some really yes, good Yes, but points. my podcast, Geared for Growth, um, definitely check that out, especially because you were a guest only a couple of weeks ago. So I got yeah. to pick your uh, gorgeous brain about all things property. Yeah, well, I, um, I saw the opportunity and I thought, let's jump on Property Pals Australia podcast. But yeah, you, you mentioned a lot. People come to you going, well, you know, what's the best um, property to buy? Because I want to depreciate my tax. And they often say an investment that I wouldn't buy myself because it doesn't have capital growth opportunities. Um, do you just want to sort of quickly briefly run through that? And then I've got some juicy questions for you as well at the end of that. Have you? Yeah, well, I might sort of stretch this out just... <laughs> Just to avoid the juice. Um, yeah, like people people used to say, oh, Mike, you know, you're a depreciation expert. I bet you only buy properties that have got massive deductions. Um, and they'll say, oh, you know, what should I buy for the best deductions? And then I'll normally say something like, you know, one-bedroom apartment in a complex of 400 um, with a gym, uh, let's say two gyms, eight swimming pools, you know, cinema's great, you know, 12 levels of basement parking. Let's try and get, you know, six to ten lifts in there at a million bucks each. And then people will say, oh, like that sounds like a terrible investment. I'm like, yeah, because it yeah. is. Um, <laughs> Anything with high body corp, like the highest body corp That's the, ba- that's the balancing act, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And and so like I used to I used to sort of answer that a bit more sensibly, but I now on purpose try and shock people because I think it's a bit like, you know, people I've heard people talk about pain lectures, right? Like if you're learning something and you're in pain at the time of doing that, you're more likely to remember it. So I'm sort of giving them that shock pain experience so they go oh yeah now i remember that so i'm i'm not going to buy property for the deductions because it's it's never a strategy it's only ever a bonus yeah well definitely check out mike's podcast gear for growth because quantity surveyors they're they're a key part of um obviously a a good property team if you're looking at in the investing space um so like you might you come on these podcasts mate and you talk a lot about um property and um, tax deduction strategies, and it's fantastic. But uh, I guess the questions, this is a bit of a selfish sort of side of thing, is you are so well connected in the industry. So I thought I'd, um, like, I hear you're the man of the people. So, uh, you know, based on <laughs> the investing space and, you know, I just wanted you to do me a favour if you could and just pull out that crystal ball next year. And um, yep. you know, what's your sort of educated view <laughs> on the Australian property market and, and you know, where it's, heading next year in 2024 or this year sorry uh very very timely because just this morning i put up my little video about my 2024 property market predictions now why did i do that it's not because i wanted to it's just an expectation and i think the media is to blame for that it's just one of those crystal ball style articles that they love to run and let's have a look at 2023, um, or, or perhaps it was 2022, where all the economists said negative 30 percent, and then suddenly they revise and they revise and they revise to roughly, you know, seven percent, which is kind of where we've landed. You look at the consensus, and it's somewhere between 1.5 and 8 percent. Now that's talking about the the property market, if such a thing actually exists. I said in my little video that I expect the property market, if I must come up with a number to to test the top end of that band if not break it so i'm sort of saying in and around eight percent or more um so i've got a little bit more of a, a glass half full and we've got more water and more glasses if we need them uh, attitude the reason why which i think is more important is, is the fundamentals i mean the number will be the number you know you, you know uh, we have a pandemic we have an invasion of another country like all these things influence and how do you predict but what what we've got um, is we've got an increased level of listings, but only just coming up to the five year average, and the rolling twenty eight day count is still super super low. So the listings are getting hoovered up pretty quick. We've got fairly record levels of overseas migration. We've got a fairly healthy uh, economy and a reasonable household savings. The mortgage cliff hasn't eventuated. We've seen property investors scared out of the market. So we're at crisis levels of rental accommodation and we're not building at a pace that um, the government expects that we will. The 1.2 million homes within five years is an absolute fanciful idea given a huge construction shortage. We're talking a, a third of construction companies are reporting shortages. And mm. then we've also got a huge um, pipeline of government infrastructure where all of the tradies are going. And of course, the bushfire season has maybe just about to start, but certainly 
natural disasters are coming thick and fast because Mother Nature is very upset at us for what we've been doing. Um, and, you know, those insurance disasters, they pull a lot of the trades as well because that's where the money is. I mean, I've spoken to huge volume builders saying, we can't get roofers. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, you're like the big name. You're like the McDonald's of building. Like surely people want to come and work with you, but there's actually more money elsewhere. So I think all of those uh, fundamentals in concert with the sentiment in and around rate reductions, possibly in 2024, says that there's a lot of fire up the backside of property for 2024 for me. So why... Why do you think that they are, I mean, the media, right, has a, there's always an agenda, right, to business, they've got a message behind it, but like, you know, is it there mm. to cool in, in like, I guess, the inflation ish, issue that we're seeing with cost of living going up, or that's their kind of idea is to put that commentary out there, so people put that doubt in their mind, but it, it kind of is counterintuitive in my brain, right, like, if you're trying to tell people the market's mm. not going to do much, but we're on this massive housing supply shortage. You know, you, you look at everywhere. I mean, people are living in tents in Brisbane at the moment. It's pretty crazy, but that's mm. why I'm bullish as well. Um, yeah, you're, you've, you've been around a little bit on the tracks. Um, any sort of insights <laughs> into why, you know, why they're saying uh, the 1% to 4% rise? Uh, yeah, well, The Economist, I, I guess... I haven't met an economist or read any economist that I believe fully understands the property market and they work on models, right? And, you know, I've said to people, like, economists um, are obviously very bright. They're very clever people. I don't think they're just all idiots on a massive salary and they're sort of sitting there at their desk going, gosh, I hope they don't find out I don't know anything. They're obviously very clever, credentialed people. But the property market is a bit of an obscure thing. I don't think there's any model that exists that can predict the movements of it. Um, we can see kind of trends, but the data often has a little bit of a lag to it. And right. with property, it's it's not like necessarily like stocks that are trading on fundamentals. It trades a lot on sentiment, right? And people don't always do rational things, right? Otherwise, we probably wouldn't need buyers, agents, you know, because everyone would just make the best decision, but we get caught up in our emotions. So I don't know why, I don't know why they've, they've come up with those numbers. I, I guess they just kind of think, yeah, it's probably going to be positive, but you know, I got my fingers burnt from going so far as to say 30% drop. Like we don't really ever see drops in excess of you know, six, seven, eight percent. Like, um, hasn't really happened for a long, long time, certainly since I've been uh, alive and you can tell by my face that's been a while so I, I just don't really know and and the media the media doesn't care and the market doesn't care about the media either either because you can see so many articles where they talked about brisbane had to boom because of the differential between median house prices in sydney and brisbane was so big that it just had to happen and that mm. story sort of kept getting published for about 10 years and it did mm. absolutely nothing now of course like you wait long enough every prediction comes right <laughs> you know like people are saying oh perth's gonna boom maybe five years ago could they look like they're geniuses today Maybe, depending on who's writing their press releases. But, yeah, the, the, the media, they aren't educated about property markets. 
they are they are there to sell eyeballs essentially mm-hmm. so they'll tell whatever story they they think fits that narrative and i've had marketing i've had media people call me with a story already written just wanting to to get a couple of sound bites for me to to put a package together that has already been done so you know if 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 you want to understand property i think turning off the telly um and and not reading the the media is a good start except yeah, for this media, I agree, 100% and except for the- this one and any media that i've been in ever i still <laughs> actually <laughs> hope to have a media profile <laughs> you beat me <laughs> to it mate. i've just set fire to it well, you <laughs> me to it. I was just going to say, yeah. Uh, except for the Property Pals Australia and Geared for Growth, you know, jump on those ones. Really intelligent yeah, yeah, yeah. people yeah. having a go. <laughs> I actually um, find a lot speaking of, of like, quite MCG a lot of case today, as obviously you're the director of um, that company, like I, no doubt, data. Everyone loves collecting data and referring to data these days. So, um, you know, in your business, can you talk us through? I guess the most dominant trends that you're seeing, you know, from property investors with the data on your side at the moment, just to sort of paint that picture even yeah. further? Yeah. Um, before I, I do cover the data, Jared, did you, were you about to chime in? Yeah, I was just saying like a lot of podcasts are pretty good media um, or in, in, in property space. I find they're pretty up to date. They're a great wealth of knowledge. So there's a bunch there. So listen to all podcasts and make your own decisions based on what feels and resonates with you versus the narrative of the larger media that has a bigger agenda of just selling attention. Um, Mm. When people are selling education, then you're typically going to get, you know, better, in my opinion, advice versus people that are just selling attention. Yeah. Yeah. I need to jump into the the data as well. That's a, that's a very good Point. And, and just on that, I shouldn't say like just don't consume media because, you know, podcasts are a type of media, blogs are a type of media, and there are individual commentators within the property market that are absolute gurus and that I respect really highly. I'm, I'm talking about, I mean, I don't want to say the word mainstream media because that's sort of become a loaded thing with conspiracy theorists, but <laughs> I just mean, yeah, like these are shows like this they're kind of independent like yes you guys have jobs and there's businesses and and of course opportunities to promote but the knowledge and the things that you're sharing are really quite outside of that and you're just really putting it together for the people that like know like and trust you so yeah good point before we continue today's pod i want to ask you a few questions what is your property investment goal what type of properties do you want to own how many what size valuation property portfolio do you want to own and how much net income do you want to be earning? Essentially, what's your magic number in passive income that you want to be earning and do you know how to get there? And if you do, do you know how to get there in the least time possible with the least amount of risk? Sam and I have been helping people invest in property and build property portfolios for years. People who are now replacing their income through property and we want to help you do the same. Right now, for a limited time, we are offering free property coaching to our listeners. We won't be able to do this forever, of course, so head to propertypals.au forward slash coaching. That's propertypals.au forward slash coaching to see how we can help you achieve your investment property goals. Link will be in the description too. Data and trends, I absolutely love that. I'm working on my little Netflix trailer, some something in and around. I tell you know s- stories with property data and I love doing that and and some of the things that we've uncovered uh in 2023 is the rise of perth um 
So Q1 2022, around about 9% of all property investments that we looked at, um, i.e. people buying investment properties and engaging us for tax depreciation, it's about 9% um, and that went up to over 20%. So I think it was about a 34% increase uh, in 12 months to the point where WA, and I say Perth and WA interchangeably where I probably shouldn't, but 75% of West Australians live in and around Perth, so it's it'll do, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it's um, it's it's actually, according to our data, the second most popular state in the whole of Australia for property investors, which is just insane. Like it's never it's never been close to that. So Queensland's number one, uh, WA is is number two, and there is quite a gap down to um, New South Wales and and Victoria. So that's an interesting bit of data. Um, we also had a look at the data on the Queensland land tax changes, and we saw a fourteen percent drop in investors purchasing into Queensland during that 98-day period where that was actually legislated, those land tax changes. Um, Of course, it was repealed, but it was a big enough window for us to look at the data and say, yeah, property investors voted with their feet. And if that policy was designed to help rental affordability, congratulations, you actually made it worse. Perhaps there's a resignation on the back of that that's connected. But We'll leave that alone. Um, (laughs) The other one, just quickly, is the distance people live from where they invest. We did that first, I think, in about 2019 because we wanted to challenge that idea that people buy around the corner typically from where they live because, you know, they want to be able to drive past and say, I own that or make sure that the tenants aren't cooking meth or whatever people buy stuff around the corner from where they live for. Um, so it was actually 293 kilometres was the first um, the first data point that, that we saw, um, which was way higher than average, way higher than what we thought. Then the next data sample was mid-COVID and it actually jumped to 559 kilometres. So that was a really interesting thing to see people using research, using buyers agents, using available technology to, to buy, you could argue, far enough away that they're not going to inspect it themselves. Mm-hmm. 200 Ks you might, 559 probably not. After that, it actually almost doubled to 800 odd. And in our last data sample, it was, uh, it was 15, pretty much 1500 kilometers, the average distance people buy from where they invest. And I expect that to actually come down because I think that's a Perth story because most of these property investors that are buying into Perth reside on the East Coast. So that's just a couple of snippets of some of the data that we're putting out on a regular basis. And we've, I, I think that's why I jagged my way into the most influential people for, um, what is it, uh, elite agent, because we shared some of that data and I think part of their methodology is, you know, who's clicking on which articles and people were interested in that stuff. So I just sort of like hacked my way onto the list with data. What are you seeing with Victoria with the land tax changes? Well, it's it's. I, I did a presentation to the property investment professionals breakfast in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago, and I had a little segment which was pretty cool because the shadow Victorian housing minister was there, and I had a little segment called "Stupid Political Decisions" with Dan Andrews putting his thumbs up, and I talked about the Palaszczuk decision. I talked about the Dan Andrews stuff. Um, unfortunately, it it's the data size is a little bit too small for me to robustly say this is this is the outcome uh, indicatively we we are seeing a drop we saw like an immediate sort of five percent drop 
I, I want to let that play out a little bit more to see um, what the real results of that are and in concert with some of the other data providers out there that are showing the percentage of properties that are, are for sale as investments. I think a lot of Victorians will be selling their investment properties and it's, there's no doubt that our volume has dropped in Victoria to around about 11% of national purchases and it, and it would have would have spent time over 20% in the last sort of um, six or seven years. So it's a little bit too soon for me to say anything with confidence, but no doubt um, from the data we will see it and anecdotally it's a, it's a disastrous decision uh, for property investors and in turn renters. Mm, yeah, I agree um, massively. And even from an investment point of view, we're sort of – I'll just pump the brakes on it just because it's killing all cash flow. So there's um, – yeah, something to be to learn from that side, but I definitely see there's opportunity because if people aren't actually, you know, investing in that space, then it's going to add to you know lack of supply even further, um, which could lead to price growth as well. But we'll see how that goes. I um I did want to touch on something uh, just while I got the chance too, because uh, I saw. Are you? Looking to be a master of property at the moment at Newcastle University? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I teach you. I don't know if that ship is. Yeah, if, if I don't know if that ship has sailed. So I, I started. I started the Masters of Property program um, probably a year or two before I started my business. So we're talking two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, um, and so it. The Masters of Property program um, was available to, to me after doing, you know, the Bachelor of Construction Management and I sort of did it because I was a little bit bored. I, I wasn't men as mentally stimulated as I would have liked to have been and then, of course, started the business and I was just way too busy. So there's eight subjects and I've done five. So when people sort of say like, oh, Mike, you know, tell me about you. How qualified are you to talk about this? I say, well, I do have five-eighths of a Masters so I'm sort of a big deal. Um <laughs> I do intend to finish it maybe one day because otherwise I've just kind of set fire to that money, but I don't need it for what I'm doing. And the last couple of subjects are valuation subjects because I also have about eight-tenths of an advanced diploma of property because I was almost a valuer. So it's kind of painful to go back over that old ground. Um, so, yeah, just keep an eye on this space. Yeah, nice. Well, if you yeah. need any valuation. I would, I would like to do a PhD just so I can call myself Dr. Depreciation because that would be <laughs> kind of cool. But, no, I've got enough problems. <laughs> so where do you – so all this, right, all this data that you have been collecting, mm. where, like, how are you using that, I guess, in your business and to help people outside of, like, being a quantity surveyor? Uh, that's a really good question. I think um, how we're using that to, to help people is a tricky one because we're telling stories that I think are interesting and it shows sort of the shifting sands of the property investing market, but it's, it's, it's not a leading indicator, it's a lagging indicator, right? Yeah. So um, it becomes more real-time uh, each year. So the first sort of data sample that we had, it was about 670 days between people buying a property and contacting us because I think there was a lack of uh, a lack of education around tax depreciation. It's now about 70 days, so that's, that's pretty good, but that's 70 days um, post-settlement and settlement could be 
you know, 70 days post-exchange. So um, we don't necessarily um, have the data to say, oh, look, the people are buying in this location and that being a value, right, because it's almost too late before we see it. But what we are doing is we're, we're looking at sort of um, trends of property purchases. So, for example, units versus houses in uh, around 2018 were almost like 50-50. Now um, only 16% of purchases are units. So these sorts of little bits of story kind of say what, what people are buying, like are they buying new property? Um, and, again, that was almost 50% in 2017, 2018. Um, it's probably closer to 20% um, these days. I haven't crunched that for a little while. Um, so we are just trying to share this data and share this education so people can see um, where people are moving, the types of assets that they're looking at, and hopefully that can just help to build a bit of a macro picture for people. Yeah, okay. Um, I guess yeah. my one last question just while I chime in is um, you, you said that, yeah, you've, you've been around the tracks for a little bit. Yeah, I think you look quite young, mate, but um, can you bring me back? <laughs> I'm full of flattery, right? Uh, but <laughs> I do like our conversations. I love it. <laughs> Keep going. Ask me more questions if you're going to keep saying these uh, these uh, platitudes. Can you pay my mortgage as well? <laughs> no. No, you're, no. You're, you're, you're breaking up. Jeez. Oh. Oh, <laughs> All right. I'll guess. I'll get to my question. All right. Bring me back to the years of 2008 to 2012. Do you recall seeing any mm. property price growth in Australia or in certain pockets throughout these years? 2008 to 2012. Gosh, you, you're making it a little bit difficult. Well, um, you know, post GFC, we obviously had a, a, a huge boom. Um, the exact timing of that sort of escapes me. But yeah, we we saw we saw huge uh, increases. Uh, well, I, I sort of cautioned people to talk about the property market, but I suppose that was one of those times where the property market kind of performed in concert to some degree and I think we saw that during the pandemic that was those are probably some of the some of the two only times in the in the last 15 years where you could you could almost say the property market and be you know correct in in covering it um but yeah certainly we we saw um quite a few price movements but I mean we started our business in 2011 so I wasn't really collecting um much data before 2011 and it started quite modest because um I would see in the industry uh, quantity surveyors saying, on average, we get between five and ten thousand dollars. And when I started the business, I thought, well, this is rubbish. That's not an average. Firstly, it's a range, and I want to be the first person to say, well, what it actually is. So um, we saw that it was nine thousand eight hundred and thirteen dollars, and I'll always remember that because that was the first time we actually saw kind of real data. But um, I wonder if there's something that you're is, is there something specific that you're getting at there, Sam, with that time period? It's very suspicious. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, you're, you're a wise, you're a wise man beyond your years. <laughs> the uh, I get like the JFC right, two thousand and eight, or uh, in America, two thousand seven. And we, yep. like, from a valuation perspective on the Gold Coast and sort of nationwide, we saw that downturn from sort of like, you know, at 2008 and the bottom of the market around Sydney was probably like 2012 from what I can see. It's just that I'm trying to help people understand that there's obviously markets within markets around Australia and um, talking to people like yourself, it's like you know, I, I want to try and understand deeper as to, you know, even though 
we saw a global financial crisis, right? And then prices were declining yep. in, say, your Sydney and Melbourne. But there were pockets that you know were um, you know not as affected by that because there were that supply demand mismatch. And I was just trying to gain a bit of insight to see if you if you did come across any any markets that actually didn't decrease in value because there is a lot of fear that the media pumped through and it's it's holding people back from investing yep. their money, right? So that's kind of the overarching. Well, well. Yeah, well now now you've you've given me some like bumper bowling lanes to throw <laughs> my deliveries down. Um yeah, you talk about locations, but I think segmentation is a big part of that as well. So the GFC um was really perpetuated by the top end of town um suffering quite quite big. Um I think the price points where typically investors purchase and that's another data release that we had where um the average purchase price was was six fifty, and if you remove the outliers, uh, according to ChatGPT's statistical models, it's actually closer to five fifty. Um, and 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 properties in and around that price point are just fundamentally more robust because they're just more affordable. If you think about purchasing property in terms of a pyramid, which I'm mentioning here, now, I'm showing here with actions, which is not really great on an audio format. But at the top of the pyramid, oh, good. At the top of the pyramid, you might have your, you know, your ten, twenty, thirty million dollar properties out there. Now, at any one time, there's only a couple of buyers that have got the coin to be able to do that. You go midway down the pyramid, obviously the demand increases because there's more amount of people that can purchase that. You start going down to that five fifty level. There's always demand. You're going to have tenants that might be looking to buy. You've got first home buyers. You've got investors. It's just much. It's just much more a robust. Um, price point. So when people sort of say, you know, like I've got, um, you know, I want to buy an investment property, I've got, you know, $1 million or $2 million, I'm sort of like, well, I think there is a sweet spot where diversification needs to be part of that. I, I personally would much rather own multiple sub-million dollar properties than than those, those higher end ones because, you know, there's the eggs in one basket idea um there's the the lower yields because again as you go higher in that purchase price there's less people that are able to rent something like that so i always like something that um it's almost like that reverse scarcity scarcity is good but you don't want scarce people that are likely to push the uh, not able to push the property price up and for that you need people that can afford it can people can want to rent it yeah, I I love that explanation, Mike. Um, I'm glad that you put like a, a rough figure on that there around the 550 range because I had spoken to Sam about this before as well in me trying to build out my portfolio of like what's, you know, if I can have a large borrowing capacity, should I buy something around 800, 900K or mm. should I like what, you know, what should I buy like two at 400K instead? Yeah. And uh the supply and demand thing is huge and I'd love to have you sort of answer why maybe two or, you know, two 400K properties, Sam, versus like one 800K property in terms of like supply and demand and growth factors, if you if you can jump in on that. Yeah, looking at uh, yeah, the budget of, say, eight or 900,000 bucks, look, I'd, I'd always go for, you know, what is the best quality asset? I, I don't like owning, you know, say 50 investment residential properties because then you've got 50 kitchens and potentially 100 bathrooms to maintain and all that um, i'd look at it from an asset point of view first um, but i personally from an investing point of view hits on the nail on the head what you mentioned before is 
I tried target areas under seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars, just because they are that more affordable price point. Um, and then when you do see those you know, stressful times in the market where um, you do get, say, the economic times aren't as strong, then people, if they do have to sell their one point five million dollar house, they still need somewhere to live. And then from a risk mitigation strategy, even further, I look going well. Generally, they're not going to want to try and jump into the rental pool if they don't have to. So they might sell their one point five million dollar asset use that and then still buy that security of a home that is a 750 or 650 that they can quickly afford um, and they tend to mm. be more um, I guess robust as you mentioned from a uh, I guess not even from a price decline because I'm that risk mitigation mindset of a valuer uh, I'm always looking at worst case scenario uh, but also on the best case scenario I'm looking at it going well it can multiply like a $750,000 property could multiply to $1.5 million, potentially a lot faster than a 1.5 can multiply to a $3 million property because there's less people in that pool Mm. looking to purchase it. Looking at the $800,000 or $900,000 example that Jared mentioned, I'd go further and say, well, let's see what we can seek out. And it might be that we find a really great asset for you know, say $650,000. And then it's like, well, based on that, we've only got a couple of, we've got 150 to play with. Let's let's park that, increase that uh, deposit size and then go again in maybe 12 months time. Um, but mm. the, the other flip side of that coin is, well, you can probably get two really good $450,000 assets in your portfolio. It just depends on, you know, yeah, Jared's portfolio size has got, two properties are going for another a third at the moment and it, it goes into that category of well what's your risk appetite and what's your goals for this purchase and um, it's definitely coming to a time um, in his portfolio where we are chasing a bit more income and he's got some really strong assets in um, and one's in Queensland and one's in WA so yeah diversification is, is pretty key it might be a bit mm. of a long-winded <laughs> answer on my phone. No, that's that, perfect. What, are, what are your thoughts on that Mike? Yeah, look, I think, I mean, you're far more educated on these matters than I am, but I think that um, it depends on the market, right? Like, so you could go somewhere for 650 buy something that's kind of blue chip in that market. Other markets at 650 you're kind of in a bit of a backwater and, you know, you might have some issues with, with tenants or maintenance or, you know, it might have to be an older style property. So I don't think there's any kind of hard and fast around, you know, it should always be a 550 or a 650 or a 450. I think the the location that you're buying in is is probably number one most important because, you know, what's happening? You know, is there a shortage of rental accommodation as, as seen in the vacancy rate? You know, what are the days on markets? What what are the population movements? You know, what are the demographics? What What's the infrastructure pipeline like? So, these are all probably more important things than, you know, should I buy something for 550 or, or 500 if you've got that flexibility. Um, but yeah, I, I do love the diversification of, of having multiple assets. I think you can take that too far and just try and hunt things that are 200 grand or something, which apparently are still uh, available. But yeah, look, um, I, I just think if you've got, you know, a mil and a half to spend, um, you're better off looking at, at two or three properties than, than one individually. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm not. I'm not, a, I'm not a guru uh, like you guys. I guess yeah, Jared knows more this than anything. But you're right. Like you start from the broad base approach and start. Well, the screen's too small, but you know, you start 
narrowing your way down. You know, you want to make sure that you're investing in the best locations initially um, and then having that session around yep. that and then going, all right, once we've found those sorry, two or three target locations, then uh, it's really important to find the right asset because we can't print the perfect property. Uh, but obviously mm. it's the opportunities that present themselves and then you go into um, yeah, what you can do on that asset and how it fits your yeah, your risk appetite and also what your cash reserves are. A lot of people at the moment are running around looking for, you know, I want a granny flat play or a, I want to develop it and they're not really educated into actually the costs that are involved with that and the opportunity cost of what else could you be doing with that money um, at that stage. So always a constant education yes. process oh yeah absolutely and i think um something that i talk a fair bit on the on on my podcast is that the property is kind of like the exciting thing but that doesn't mean that it should come first i sort of equate it to dessert um you know like if you're a, a good sort of um a good country boy like me you're always told by your parents you can have your dessert but you got to eat your veggies first and I think the veggies is the planning right so it's kind of like all right well why am I doing this I'm doing this because I want a Ferrari or I'm doing this because I want to retire on a hundred thousand dollars a year or I want to retire at 55 instead of 67 and then you can kind of figure out all right to achieve that I need these types of properties I need this type of yield so I still look attractive to the banks as I continue to grow and I need this sort of performance. I think if you're not doing that first, you're just going straight to your, what would have been when I was growing up, the Vionetta box ones. Like that was the height of of luxury, you know, like those were only for special occasions as a poor country kid, right? We had to have guests over and even then I only got a slither, right? You can't just race to that. I think that's the the hot spots, right? And I was talking to um, a professional hotspotter the other day and he was kind of saying, I actually don't, like, it's my job. I'm, I'm known as a hotspotter, but what I'm actually trying to do is find locations that will outperform the market over time, not like flash in the pan sugar hits, right? But we get so excited about that. Oh, we've, we've got, you know, we've got pre-approval. Like let's get, let's get the property. I think we do need to slow down and go, what are we actually trying to achieve? It's not fun. It's not sexy. I mean, you wouldn't expect anything fun and sexy from a quantity surveyor, basically an accountant. Um, but it needs to be done if you are serious about the results and you want to treat your portfolio like a business, which I think everybody should. Absolutely. Spot on agree with you on treating your property like a business and knowing what your business or property goals are and uh, reverse engineer it from that. You know, What's your 55, you know, age 55 retirement look like? Is it the 100K mm. income a year, 50K income a year? And then, and then how do you go back to where you're at today and then build that portfolio out in a in a somewhat linear fashion, as much mm. as you can predict what the market might do. Um, yeah, Mike, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. You mentioned that you do. I think it was you sort of audit or do a free audit or something for people that are looking for corner surveyors, and then if the property can be depreciated uh, or you can do a depreciation schedule, then you'll work with them. Is that, yeah. is that correct? And if so, how, yeah. how do we get people to go check that out? Yeah, so for example, if if Sam has purchased a, a property or is maybe even in feasibility, he might send a realestate.com link or the um, whatever the agency's link is and we can look at it and say, oh, look, this particular one, 
because it was built at this date or we can see these improvements, we're thinking maybe four to $5,500 worth of deductions. Uh, either way, that's a conservative estimate, but we're comfortable that it's worthwhile getting a report done because our, our, our first kind of job is to pay for ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's going to cost you six or $700 to get a report done. We want that money back in your pocket in the first year and make 39 years a bonus. So we'll always do that for free. So you can go to our website, you can find me on Facebook. I get messages on, you know, potential deductions on properties, every channel you can mention, uh, you can imagine. So I'm pretty easy to find. Yeah. What? So we will put, post your website link below in the show notes and how you can be contacted. But just for, um, just to speak it out in audio for people listening, what yep. is your website? Yeah, it's mcgqs.com.au. So you think about the cricket ground, the MCG, and then QS for quantity surveyors, and you've got, you know, you're you're five-eighths of the way there, just like my master's. <laughs> Locked in. Mike, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it and uh, looking forward to chatting you again, hopefully in the future. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was a sincere pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks.